Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 47, Love is Our Law. How did the early church choose not to fight back against their oppressors, and yet refuse to submit to the demands of the Roman Empire? Let's find out as Steve looks at the paradox of the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. I just want to do a quick overview of what what we said a few weeks ago as I introduced this series. The Beatitudes uh, are a call to embrace paradox because the Beatitudes turn the standards of the world upside down. Uh, They point to a greater reality, an ultimate and eternal reality. They point to the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of heaven has come. Uh, They invite us to begin to see and live from God's perspective. Uh, The Beatitudes invite us to live in a new way, with a new value, even a new standard for living. And as we do this, the reality of the kingdom begins to increase in us and through us and around us. The Beatitudes call us to live God's future now. We often talk about that, pulling the future into the present, living heaven now. But it's a future based upon very different values than the world has. The Beatitudes express the meaning of discipleship. One of the things I emphasized at the beginning of this series, the Beatitudes, I think it is a mistake to view them as requirements or conditions for blessing. I believe that we've got to be really careful as moderns not to see the Beatitudes as a, as a method for uh, advancement, a method for becoming better disciples. Uh, We, in our generation and the one before it, were particularly goal-oriented, and I think in more ways than we realize. Um, The Beatitudes are not something to attain to. They're certainly not about knowing more about God. I think the Beatitudes are about possessing Christ within ourselves. And um, I want to highlight something else before we get into this particular beatitude. I think that there's, there's a lot of different ways uh, to frame the beatitudes, to understand them. But I want to present three to you tonight. Um, <coughs> excuse me. First of all, I, I feel pretty strongly that the beatitudes are Jesus' biography. This is who he is. This is how he lives. And um, as such, they point to him, they point to how he sees reality, uh, what he says is true, what he says really matters. They can help us evaluate events and even power structures around us uh, in light of who our king really is. Recently, I heard a friend say this, and I wrote it down, I liked it so much. He said, uh, speaking to a congregation, he said, we are political. And there was a little bit of a rumbling. I could tell some people were comfortable and some were uncomfortable with that. But let me go on. He said, uh, we are political, but it's not that we carry placards or get involved in the political arena in the common sense. Rather, political comes from the word polis, which simply means the way in which a community organizes itself. So we do this. We organize ourselves around our King Jesus. Therefore, he is our king and law, uh, pardon me, and love is our law. I like that. He is our king and love is our law. And this is how he is changing the world. So 
Again, this, this whole sense of his, Jesus' biography found in the Beatitudes, connected to that, they're very much an invitation into his life, entering into his life. Again and again, you've heard me say, those who've been around, that the, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of Christ, is that, that we are in him. Uh, 164 times Paul says we are in him. And he is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, Jesus who said, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. So it's the Beatitudes are, are an invitation into his life. And this is why so many of the early church fathers saw the Beatitudes as a, as a kind of ladder. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But it's a ladder that leads us uh, forward, calls us onward and forward into Christ. <coughs> the second framework for the Beatitudes is they are a declaration of truth from God's point of view. As such, they stand in stark contrast to the world's standard and indeed the world's point of view. The Beatitudes lay the foundation for the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so I see that the Beatitudes open up a door that that carries us into the Sermon on the Mount as an invitation from Jesus to reorder not only our values and our vision, uh, even our habits, but to center our lives in the depths of Christ. The Beatitudes call us to move from externals to an internal life that is wholeheartedly turned toward the triune God. We talk quite a bit about blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Those are very much uh, things, interior things in us. Um, so he's inviting us into his life, the life of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are, are deeply Christological. They, they point us to him. They take us back to him. They lead us further into the mystery of Christ. They invite us to a life immersed in Christ. So I've, I've said the same thing in some different ways to, to, to try and carry us into, I think, this incredibly important framework for understanding the Beatitudes. And the third way that I'd frame it is they are his promises. There are promises attached to so many of these beatitudes. He, he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied, etc. So they are promises. Um, you know, the beatitudes stand in, in kind of a, more than a contrast, almost a, a defiance of the world around us. So I wanted to give us that framework as we look at the third beatitude. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. This third beatitude echoes a, uh, a verse in Psalm 37 verse 11, that, that almost every Jew would have known. The meek will inherit the land. So I want to take quite a bit of time tonight and I hope broaden and maybe deepen our understanding of, of what it means to be meek. The Greek word praeus simply means gentle, meek, considerate, exercising self-control, Inward grace of soul. I like that. Um, 
if you look through all kinds of Bible dictionaries and references, you'll see those kinds of words. Uh, I saw one uh, having a teachable spirit, um, tranquility, steadiness. According to the church fathers, um, to be meek is to be simple in faith. By the way, if I refer to the church fathers, and, and this is new for you tonight, these are the, the, the theologians, the teachers, the leaders of the church, particularly in the first uh, seven or eight hundred years. <coughs> and they say that to be meek is to be simple in faith. Isn't that interesting? To be patient in the face of every affront. This beatitude, blessed are the meek, challenges all followers of Jesus to accept God's dealings with us as good, therefore without resisting or disputing. I'd kind of like you to hold that word in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back to it later on tonight, that that acceptance is a part of this. Paul said um, in uh, Colossians 3.12, he says to the church, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You know what's interesting? I found out that the word praos, which is the, the main word that we have in the New Testament for meekness, was actually a Greek term used to describe a wild animal who had been tamed. Now, what this shouts to me is that meekness is not our natural state. That like a wild animal, there's a part of us that needs to be tamed as we come under Christ. So, it's interesting, one of the church fathers, actually a couple of them, put a lot more emphasis on on that we've got to discipline ourselves to be gentle, to be meek. And um, I'll talk some more about that later too. But meekness, meekness is opposite to self-interest and self-assertiveness. This is a theme in much of the writings of the early church fathers. Uh, and also, uh, as you read the uh, sayings of the desert fathers, which if you've never done that, you can get that book. It's very interesting. And how often the theme is not to assert ourselves, not to look for our own interest. <coughs> so... Who are the meek? Well, the first view I want to present is is looking outward to others. They're the little people who make no claims uh, for themselves. Um, you know, they can be the homeless. They can be the, the, the very marginalized. But they also can be the, the invisible ones in, in any group at work, at church, any organization we're in. The, the, these meek ones tend to be easily intimidated. Uh, they're, they're unassertive. Uh, they almost naturally seem to, to shrink back. They don't assert their rights, even their legitimate claims. I think, though, in this beatitude, there's also a, a corporate, a social sense, um, because they are the they are the powerless ones in society. There's even a suggestion here, I think, of of being oppressed. Certainly, they are powerless in the eyes of the world. Uh, theologian Frederick Bruner said this, the Beatitudes are Jesus' surprisingly countercultural God bless yous to people in God-awful situations. 
I remember I read that about 11 years ago and it just stuck with me. I, I never forgot it. And of course, we live in a culture that so highly values status and largely just assumes that the way forward, the way to succeed is through self-assertiveness. There's not only uh, secular, but there's lots of Christian self-help books about how to be more assertive, how to be more successful, how to make a better impression. And these all stand in complete contrast to this, again, I would say biographical uh, beatitude, blessed are the meek. Society's heroes are those who are able to get for themselves all that they can get. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say this has largely penetrated, uh, not everywhere, but there, there's been a significant penetration of this idea in the Western evangelical church in the 21st century. So it's obvious, isn't it? It's the aggressive who inherit the earth, those who push ahead and find ways to climb the ladder of success. But Jesus says no to this, and he turns the world's value system upside down. Now, I want to turn the table. We've just talked about them. Now I want to talk about us. How do the meek understand the world? Meekness comes from a true view of ourselves. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. This true view of ourselves is expressed not only in in how I see myself, but in my relationship with others. We're coming back into paradox here, because to a great degree, meekness means I no longer protect myself. I find this a great challenge personally, um, to not get offended, to not protect myself, to not be subtly or not so subtly making the best impression. But meekness means I no longer protect myself. This beatitude moves me from the internal life of the first beatitudes, poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, mourning over my sin, etc. And uh, it now moves me outward because meekness has everything to do with how I relate to the world around me, to the people around me. To acknowledge my sin before God is one thing. Probably most of us do that with some regularity. But to allow others to point out my failings, my sin, my weakness, is quite quite another thing. And so here's the paradox. On the one hand, meekness means I cannot defend myself from others' hurtful words or actions. But on the other hand, meekness means that I realize no one can really harm me because of the view I have of myself. John Bunyan, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, He that is down need fear no fall. Isn't that good? One of the early church fathers, St. Gregory, wrote that our anger is caused by feeling insulted and dishonored. He says, but insult cannot affect a man trained in meekness. Isn't that interesting? Trained in meekness. He went on to say this, the meek or humble man 
will meditate on all of the miseries, misfortunes, and manifold forms of disease to which human life is subject, from which no one's nature is altogether immune. If a man sees these things clearly with the purified eye of the soul, he will not easily be annoyed by the absence of honors. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The truly meek person is amazed that God and others can think of and treat him or her as well as they do. <laughs> the meek leave everything in God's hands. Our relationships, our rights, our future. This is right down to the core. This is so counterintuitive. The meek choose to trust God. They hope in his timing and his justice. So let's look at the example that Jesus gave us. Because in Matthew 11, verse 29, he said this, Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. That's Matthew eleven twenty nine. You know, Matthew, more than any other of the gospel writers, was writing uh, from a Jewish perspective, was writing to a Jewish audience. He presented more than any of the other gospel writers, Jesus um, in mosaic terms as fulfillment of the promise of uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. So with that in mind, let's look a little bit at the model of Moses. Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. See, meekness is not weakness. It's a quiet strength. When Moses was verbally attacked, he didn't fight back. Even when his own brother and sister verbally attacked him, he didn't defend himself. In his 40-year journey... From the time of, of his encounter with the burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4, we see a growing confidence in God and in God's favor on Moses' life. He didn't need to defend himself. You've probably heard this definition too. I heard it many times as a young man. Meekness has been described as grace under pressure. And we know that's the case for Moses. One exception, when he struck the rock, hit it twice. But, but he is a great example of meekness, grace under pressure. Let me give you another example from Scripture of meekness that, uh, that really points us to the meekness of Christ. In Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah uh, wrote it about 520 B.C., and he looked ahead more than 500 years to a, a totally new kind of king. Let me read you the scriptures from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So contrary to the conqueror that Israel continued through the centuries to anticipate Zechariah says, no, no, this king will, his rule will not depend on military or political might. It's interesting. Did you just see in verse 10, I'm going to cut off the chariot and the battle bow. In other words, it makes it clear that he will specifically not rule by military means. His goal is to bring peace. And it says from sea to sea, his dominion shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, his ultimate purpose transcends Israel. It is the whole world. Now, we probably know that, that very tangibly this prophecy was fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus came into the city. Roman leaders, Roman conquerors especially, they relied on reminding people of their great power and their great prestige, which is the same for leaders throughout all of history. I'm in charge. I have the final word. Everything depends on me. And as part of that, they, they would enter on a, on a war horse, a white stallion, and they'd come through the main gate of Jerusalem. Jesus came on the most humble mode of transportation possible. Uh, he came mounted on a donkey colt, and he came in through the back door. His entry was a prophetic act. It reflected who he is. That's why he said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly. Learn from me. Watch, observe, follow, imitate, all those expressions of learning. His entrance as a picture is an expression of a very different kind of kingship, radically countercultural. And you know, it was so countercultural to what they expected, the great triumphant king, that many deserted him. Many, most deserted him in that last week. They simply could not understand. It was too big of a stretch to their thinking. A meek, lowly, humble Jesus that doesn't stay meek until he gets really ticked off and then he shows him. No, he is who he is. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. I think the triumphalism of some, some modern believers is a reflection of the same inability that the crowds had or, or unwillingness to accept Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. That's something to think about, folks. Are we looking for Jesus to come on our terms or are we embracing his terms? You know, this meekness and humility would go even further. Paul talked about it in Philippians 2, where he says he humbled himself even unto death. Jesus, um, he leads the way in radical meekness. He leads the way. Therefore, as his disciples, as, as us, we are the new community. One of my favorite terms for the church, by the way. There's, there's a social 
corporate collective side to meekness that we must not overlook. The Romans were not concerned about any individual. It was the strength of a community that threatened them. From the beginning, the church chose to absorb injustice without fighting back. But they didn't fight back, but they resisted. They, they did not give in to the demands of Roman society. This is a corporate meekness that creates a calm, peaceful, trusting community built on love and justice and peace. I'll say it again. Meekness is not weakness, but it's strength of character. It's strength of purpose. It's, it's built on unshakable values. The meek have strength to disobey injustice, no matter the cost. You know, one of the clearest examples in our lifetime is Dr. King. And Martin Luther King embraced the power of peaceful, nonviolent resistance that didn't fight back, that didn't rage, but just said no. And where did he learn that? He actually learned it from Mahatma Gandhi in India. And uh, both King and Gandhi, they brought down the, the great powers that be. But where did Gandhi get it? He got it from the Sermon on the Mount. You may be surprised to know that he read a chapter of the Gospels every day. So <clears throat> what we have is Jesus always presented this, what's been called the third way. And I'm going to talk a little bit more on that um, in the next week or two. But this third way doesn't fight back but it doesn't give in either. It keeps gentle and it keeps strong. Hey guys, my name is Tim Stewart. I am the Director of Operations at Impact Nations. I'm sitting here with my friend, Brad. Hi, Brad. Hi. We just finished recording a podcast, but we got talking about your newest book, uh, The Pastor, which is not uh, like your others. This one's a, a fiction. Um, and so I was hoping you could just tell, tell some of our listeners about that. I'd love to. Uh, so the title is The Pastor, A Crisis. And the back cover description says this, crisis, an explosive public meltdown, a violent incident in the psychiatric ward. Now the pastor stares into the abyss of his own secret shame. Before he can be free, he must confront his demons and find grace. But will he let go? Will he allow himself to be healed? The pastor explores the perilous human journey from self-will and striving through defeat and despair to hope and the redemption found only through surrender. And so this is a short novel. It's called a novella, actually, when it's under 60,000 words. And I've co-written it with Paul Young, who was the author of The Shack. For just a second, it looked like you forgot how you co-wrote it. With. Yeah. <laughs> you had to read it. I was oh, looking for the orientation. And so... Um, uh, it comes with a trigger warning, which is not to say don't read it. The trigger warning is this. Uh, if you're under 16, you probably shouldn't read it. If you're over 16, the trigger warning is that you will be invited into a healing process with the pastor. Mm -hmm. And so we are hearing reviews that say that it is uh, dark, raw, and beautiful. 
And that's sort of the journey the pastor has to take. And, and some would even say that's the journey that uh, the church needs to take. But can they yeah. do it? Yeah. And so uh, I'm super excited about it. You can get hard copies on Amazon. You can get Kindle on Amazon. You can get an audio version that is a full cast, six-actor audio drama. On And uh, the other thing, if you want an autographed copy from Paul and I, you can you can write to uh, or go online to Premier with an E on the end of Premier, premiercollectibles.com, hashtag pastor. Awesome. Uh, let me ask you this while I got you. Sure. Did you, did you catch yourself by surprise when you started writing this? Like, did, uh, this is, is this your first novel? Yeah. I, I had it in my heart to express some of the truths that we that, that we've come to experience through authentic, uh, you know, working with both victims and predators who've come through a transformation, a hellish transformation process to healing and freedom. And so one of the things that makes the novel so authentic is many of the scenes in the novel come right out of actual real life experiences of people we know. Mm. And so in fact, some of the dialogue, uh, is like copy and paste from text messages that Paul and I have received from people who are working through their stuff. So, so that's where it gets very raw. And we've heard that, you know, wow, that part was hard to read. And why is that? Because I connected with it. And, uh, but our, we have a Spanish translation coming and, and that translator said, I can assure you that everyone will connect with the pastor, both in his pain and in his, and in the love that comes to heal him. Yeah. Um, but I got Paul involved because although I, I had it in my heart to write fiction, I also know it's perilous for a theologian to try to do that because it come, can come across as preachy and agenda driven. And, and uh, Paul is an expert on making sure that doesn't happen. And so uh, we're very satisfied yeah. that there's nothing gratuitous about it, yeah. um, but it goes to dark places and shines the light in there. Yeah. I got dad walking in behind me while I'm trying to record an ad. This is the, this is the real deal, folks. Um, <laughs> so if there's one thing that you want your readers to take away from this, you know, when, when you write your nonfiction, obviously you've got very specific stuff you want people to, to come away with a new understanding of things. What's the one thing you want people to come away from reading this book? There is no one beyond redemption and nothing that the blood of Christ cannot address and achieve uh, and, and cleanse. Yeah. He hit the cross is powerful. <laughs> and um, so to imagine that it could even reach the pastor, then it can reach anybody. Wow. Good. Uh, I'm going to include links. Uh, we'll, we'll post this on Facebook. I'll probably put it in uh, the podcast next week. So we'll, we'll include links uh, to all that stuff. Um, and I'm going to go get the audio version right now because I'm excited I, to. And we'll even make a link for you. You can have a link to a, a sampling of the audio. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. We will link that too. Well, Brad, thank you so much. Looking forward My pleasure. To Thanks, man. We've looked at, at Jesus' example uh, of meekness. Let me unpack meekness a little bit more because I, I'm trying to not have it as like this nice safe concept and boy, isn't it good to be meek. I want to try to <laughs> bring this right down 
on to the ground. There's, there's a number of New Testament words that are conceptually linked to meekness. And if we look at those words, I want to look at just a few of them, but I think they will help us to understand meekness in a more concrete way. The first one, which is linguistically and conceptually linked, is gentleness. Uh, meekness and gentleness are so closely linked that in, in uh, some uh, verses of the Bible, they're interchangeable. You can look at one version and it'll say the meek, the other it'll say the gentle. But together they give us a, a fuller picture of Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. To be gentle is the opposite, of course, of being harsh um, or in any way severe. Paul lists gentleness as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Many of us know that passage. This is a really interesting passage because Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, they give us a, a great picture of how central gentleness, lowliness, meekness are to our life together. It's how we can live as the new community. So Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And how do we do that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says in Philippians, let your gentleness be known to all men. Our gentleness is a signpost that points to Jesus. It points to the one who says, learn from me. The second connected term is humility. And humility is a topic we could, we could open up as a completely separate night. But for tonight, humility like gentleness is so closely linked to meekness that both words, meekness and humility, are often translated as lowliness. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Paul wrote this. Again, practical. Meekness isn't like this nice idea. It's practical. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. True humility always leads to specific action. And that action is putting others' interests ahead of my own. How hard is that? Peter, who had learned a lesson on the night Christ was betrayed, a lesson that marked the rest of his life, Peter said this in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility or lowliness toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're confronted with a cosmic, universal, unalterable principle. You and I, we either move in the, in the direction of Jesus, the way he's moving, as he says, follow me, learn from me. 
And if we're moving in the direction of Jesus, we're moving in the direction of his creation. And when we do that, according to Peter right here, he says, we will find grace. Or we'll hold on to self-interest and self-preference. And that means we will move in the opposite direction, which is, after all, the direction of culture and society. And instead of experiencing grace, we will experience opposition from heaven itself. We're moving away from the place of grace and favor. It moves us out of that covering. St. Gregory, in the fourth century, he sees this beatitude as a command to choose moderation. He insists that we can choose. And he says, therefore, there's a responsibility. We're not able to say, well, that's just the way he made me. Gregory said this, insult will not affect a man who is trained in humility. See that word trained. The third related word I want to talk about is patience. A church father has said that the, the meek are simple in faith and patient in the face of every affront. As a result, the meek neither provoke evil nor are they provoked by evil. They are more content to be patient and endure an offense than to commit one by responding in kind. Patience is absolutely linked with meekness. We cannot be impatient and meek. We cannot be impatient and humble. And so it's something that, that we need to, to grow in. It's something that, that we need to let God work into us. The fourth word I want to comment on is trust. As mentioned, this beatitude is a direct reflection of Psalm 3711. Remember, I told you that near the beginning, the meek will inherit the land. This entire psalm clearly links meekness, patience, and especially trust. I want to I just take a, a moment and read the first several verses of Psalm 37, and I want you to think in terms of how tangible it is around this issue of, of meekness. Do not fret because of evildoers. You see, the meek don't fret. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers for they will quickly uh, wither like the grass and fade like the green herb. Famous verse, verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I want to emphasize that word, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in Him also, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. You see, rest, patience, trust, they're all intertwined. That phrase, to cultivate faithfulness, that jumped out at me so long ago. I, I, I bet you it was close to 40 years ago. 
And uh, what does it mean to cultivate faithfulness? I think it means to grow in the grace of meekness. It isn't just, oh, I want to be meek. It's, it's, it's cultivating. It's, it's working with that intention to embrace Christ's spirit that I can live in meekness. And if I'm going to cultivate the grace of meekness, I've got to develop trust. And this takes time. It is a long journey. So that's opening up what do we mean by meekness. But now what's the promise that they shall inherit the land? The word for land or earth is gehe. And it most likely refers to the land rather than the more generic sense of just the earth. And uh, we can understand this promise of inheriting the land in at least three different ways. <coughs> Pardon me. The first is, of course, the theme of the promised land, which goes back to the very origins of Israel. This is the great overarching promise, the ultimate destiny. It's the promised land. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was that he was going to give land to his descendants. Israel always understood this as the ultimate goal. From from Exodus on, we see their struggle for freedom. Through centuries of occupation and oppression, the promise never changes. Now, The blessings are to the meek, they will inherit the land. What this seems to suggest to me is that, yes, there's going to be conquerors. And if you look at Israel's history, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and in Jesus' time, the Romans. But the meek, they just stay on. They're just, they take care of what's in front of them. (laughs) They cultivate the land. And so the others come and go, but the meek carry on in the land. Sabbath, and we talked about Sabbath two months ago, is the, is the goal of creation. Therefore, Israel, the land exists as a place of resting in him. That's what the promised land is about. It's about resting in God. It's about freedom. It's about fulfillment. It's what the wonderful word shalom is about. And the land belongs to the meek because it belongs to the king of peace. And I've told you that that meekness and peaceableness are, are linked. The land is therefore the promise of peace and contentment to the meek who can be patient, humble, trusting in the goodness of God. A favorite verse from a favorite psalm is 27, Psalm 27, 13, I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. (sighs) Let's talk a little bit about the the upside-down economics of the kingdom. Because the the kingdom challenges all the world's structures. And I, this is a, a couple of verses that I remember were shared with my kids in one of the early days, one of the early moves, because God called us to move long distances a few times over the years. And one of my kids was was just six, and he was just really hurting. And uh, my dear friend was on the phone with him, and he took him to this 
passage, which is Mark 10, 29 and 30. And even a six-year-old could understand it. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. Inheritance speaks always about a promise. It's something that's coming. And uh, an inheritance is usually fulfilled at a future date. Now, the community of believers walking in the trust, patience, gentleness, and self-giving humility of the meek, their eyes are on the promise, and therefore they live in an entirely different way. There's a, there's a multiplication through mutuality that the world cannot even understand. There's, there's something as we come together that, that is, it just multiplies what we have because it becomes ours. I, I honestly have, and not just that kind of nice fluffy term. I've got deep at a heart level, I've got brothers and sisters in many nations around the world. I've got places where I can just go to their house and it's, I live as if it's my house. And conversely, I have many people come here and they're not guests, they're family. So there is that sense where he says, nobody gives up what they've got without receiving a hundred times more. This is the multiplication that a community of gentleness and trust and faithfulness live in that. They share in that. Suddenly everything, uh, everything from, from natural, from practical resources to emotional connection, it all multiplies. And uh, it can't work outside the power of the Spirit. We go back to Ephesians 4, verse 1 and 2 that I told you. It's by the power of the Spirit, the decision to live in meekness. And it brings great fruit. Remember, I told you earlier in, in Philippians 2, Paul said, being very practical with the church, <coughs> do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out, not for only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So all of that is to talk about this, this upside down uh, the, the inheriting the land, it's a very different kind of land that we inherit. It's a, it's a land of sharing. It's a land of freedom. It's a land that comes with, therefore, great plenty. Thirdly, another view of they shall inherit the land is, is looking at the promise in the context of the end of all things. This beatitude presents a contrast. It says, you're suffering now, but you will reign with him in the eternal land. Many of us this past week, because it was Resurrection Sunday, many of us spent time in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. And the promise there is that we will be transformed from mortals to those who put on immortality. The promise of the land is that we will be eternal beings who inherit an eternal land. The land will be the new earth. 
<coughs> this, pardon me, this new earth, the land, is the great culminating promise of all of Scripture and of all of history. Isaiah 65, 17, one of my favorite passages. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. There is the land. It's a whole new way. We get a taste of it now as we walk in, in, in learning from him in meekness. As we learn a, a united corporate meekness, we get a taste of heaven now. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 66, 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me. This is the Lord's declaration. So your offspring and your name will remain. And then the great climactic chapters of all the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So when he says, inherit the land, this comes to us in so many different ways. One is, it's that promise. It's, it's our inheritance. It's the, it's the upside down kingdom, which is the land. It's a whole other way of living. And then it is this ultimate, what's called eschatological promise, the end times promise of the land. So, how do we apply this beatitude? To put it simply, what difference does this make? Earlier I said that the meek accept God's dealing with us as being good. Therefore, the meek don't bargain. They don't complain. They don't dodge. I think probably the greatest example, certainly the most significant example we have uh, of this of this acceptance, meekness as accepting the Lord's will, is probably Jesus' mother, Mary. When Gabriel came and told this unmarried girl that she was about to become pregnant she would have instantly understood the social implications that would hang over her then and maybe the rest of her life. And yet her response was this. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Luke one thirty-eight. It is incredible. And why is this perhaps the most significant act of acceptance and meekness in all of history? Because her acceptance led to the second person of the Trinity coming in the flesh. It led to the incarnation. Her meekness unlocked the power of heaven. Now here's where we get to this whole counterintuitive thing. The meek are not weak. The meek are not those who are losing out. The world says so. The world tries to present it that way. But, but acceptance, embracing the purposes, the will of God, whatever God brings, realizing whatever he brings, he brought it 
It's for his purpose. It unlocks the power of heaven in our lives. Two weeks ago, I said, blessed are those who mourn. And we talked about mourning. This is a time of mourning. I expressed pretty openly my own feelings of mourning, of sadness in this time. And I told you that the psychologists tell us there's five stages of grief. You may likely know them. The first is we deny it. No, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. The second is we get angry. The third, there's bargaining. We're seeing a lot of that in the, in the, the larger, the macro right now. The fourth is depression. And the fifth, if people get to it, is acceptance. Now, I've said to you that the Beatitudes are Jesus' biography. They describe him. And the one, the one who said to all who will follow, learn from me. So they describe Christ, but they're also an invitation into his life. They're a declaration of what is true. We talked about that the first week. A blessing declares and releases the thing it expresses. And and lastly, they are his promises. So I am absolutely convinced that it wasn't the Lord who is full of mercy and loving kindness, as Scripture tells us. He didn't cause this virus. He doesn't bring death. He brings life. But he will always use everything for his good if we don't resist him. I believe this is a season, this is an opportunity, an invitation for us as a people In fact, I think it's an opportunity for the whole world to learn to trust and accept that God is at work. I was reading yesterday Isaiah 30, and verse 15 says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let me just finish by sharing a little more of what's going on for me. Tonight we looked at humility and gentleness. We looked at trust and patience as aspects of meekness, that it isn't just a kind of a fuzzy term, but these these are attributes. You know, every one of us has got one or more of these four that are a greater challenge for us. For some of us, it's trust. Um, and, and so if, if, if we start getting in a feeling insecure, we can, we can become very fearful. Um, you know, and it could be gentleness, could be any of them. Last year, the Lord was talking to me a lot about patience. He just, in my time alone with him, he talked to me about it again and again. And patience is, is my difficult one. Um, you know, I, I've always, it seems like I've always been thinking more about tomorrow than today. It, I, it's just the way he wired me. We're in the middle of stuff right now, and my mind, I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do next? 
And that's good. That's fine. But what comes with that is impatience. You know, people that, that tend to see the future or think about tomorrow, they really wrestle with impatience because there's the pain of the gap between what they see and where we are. And that's it for me. So patience is a leading edge of my own personal journey with Jesus. And of course, patience is directly tied with acceptance. And I stressed acceptance in the second half of this talk. I deep down know that I'm changing. I know that slowly, slowly, I am being conformed into his image, as Paul said, Romans 8, 29. I'm being transformed by beholding him. And any change that is happening in me is not because I'm under more conviction I've got to be more patient. I've got to walk in meekness. Because I, it's not because I'm trying more. It is all coming out of his spirit at work in me. And for me, now I'm being very personal. How, how does this change? How does this change happen? For me, it's the time of being still with Jesus, of abiding in Christ. So often, <laughs> I'll finish a quiet time with him. And I've just been still before him, abiding in him. And I, it's funny, I, it's a quiet time and, and I'm in his presence, whether or not I feel it, because I know who he is. And I trust who he is and his heart for me more than my own feelings. So whether or not I feel it, and it's, it's interesting, I, I'm there and I cannot even say what's transpired. I can't tell you what I've prayed. I, I can't tell you what I've heard. But there is something for me, mysteriously, deeply, and yet very, very slowly, transformative by simply being still with him. I'm learning the power of acceptance in my time with Jesus, because I'm learning to accept whatever my experience with him is, as what he has for me. That's his will for me. Even on those times when I feel nothing. I've been in and out of this journey for 39 years. I know when it started, but in and out. But over the last few years, I've been in. I've been in this journey with him. I recently came upon these words by Thomas Merton, a contemplative who is one of my very favorite writers. And I want to finish with this quote, because this whole issue of meekness and acceptance is so closely tied. So let me read you what Thomas Merton said. By consenting to his will with joy and doing it with gladness, I have his love in my heart, and I am on my way to becoming what he is, who is love. 
And by accepting all things from him, I receive his joy into my soul, not because things are what they are, but because God is who he is. And his love has willed my joy in them all. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for these eight Beatitudes. I'm seeing them like I've never seen them before in all these decades and decades. I thank you that they are your biography. I thank you that they are your invitation. I thank you that they are a way deeper and deeper into you. Lord, I, I pray that out of the things that have been shared tonight, you'd, you'd speak different things to different people. Whether it's about inheriting the land or what it means to be meek or what it means for each one of us, where it challenges me and each of us. But Lord, as Paul said, it's by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. So we look to you in meekness, in vulnerability. And we say, it's only you, Jesus. It's only you who does this. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but for me personally, this is one of the most challenging of the Beatitudes. So I've actually invited a couple of friends to discuss it with me in detail next week. On Monday, October 19th at 8.30 a.m., we'll be recording a live episode of the Impact Nations podcast with my pastor, Matt McDonald, and one of our church elders, Chris Armistead. We're going to make it a really practical discussion about how we, as followers of Christ, can engage with others on a highly politicized environment that we've got right now, while maintaining a Christ-like humility all the while. It's going to be a fantastic discussion. If you have questions that you'd like for us to discuss, you can send them to podcast at impactnations.com and we'll be sure to bring them up. Uh, you can catch that recording live on Facebook on Monday morning. Otherwise, I'm assuming you've already subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. If not, what's the matter with you? Head to impactnations.com slash podcast and click subscribe today so you won't miss a single episode. In the meantime, don't forget to grab Brad Jerzak's latest book. The links are in the show notes below. Thanks and have a great week.